Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matthew. Hey, Stuart. Hey, how's Paul? Paul, I I think Paul is quite busy this week, and uh, he was not able to join us tonight, as you are aware. Are you you telling me it's just me and you? That's kind of creepy. (laughs) Well, we do. We have a guest. And oh. uh, before before we get too far into it, I wanted to this our guest on this episode, Avital Oglasser, and we talked all about perioperative management, did, including. Did, did, did we want to say what what Paul usually says? Oh yeah, yeah. Why don't you say that, and then I'll tell them what we talked about on the show. That's fine. We'll go backwards. Yeah, let's go. Uh, yeah, let's go backwards. That's right. All right. So, uh, in case you didn't know, this is the Curbsiders. So we're an internal medicine podcast, and we use expert interviews because. We're not experts at this stuff to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And for the interest of full disclosure, in the words of Paul Williams, we kind of screw around a little bit for the first few minutes. So um, if you want to be a worse off person for that, just go ahead and skip forward. But otherwise, stick with us and you'll learn a few things and uh, get a wonderful movie recommendation. Right. So as I was starting to say, with our with our guest tonight, we talk all about perioperative medicine we talk about risk, the risk equations, cardiac testing, cardiac biomarkers, the in general, how to communicate your recommendations both to the patient and to the surgeon when you're doing a perioperative evaluation. We also talk about why it's important to evaluate the whole patient because there's other risks like uh, pulmonary risks, which are also very important. So we'll get all into all of that and more, which I'm probably forgetting. Uh, Most importantly, how I don't know how to be Canadian. (laughs) This episode is very wide ranging. And yes, that is right. At some point, it's so wide ranging that at some point uh, we started talking about Stuart hypothetically being from Canada. And that'll be. You love Tim Hortons, though. (laughs) That'll make more sense when you listen to the episode. Our guest is Dr. Avital Oglasser. She is an associate professor of medicine at Oregon Health and Sciences University, where she is also the assistant program director for scholarship and social media for the internal medicine residency program. She uh, she did her internal medicine residency at OHSU. Uh, after completing residency, she stayed on in the division of hospital medicine and is now involved in the perioperative medicine clinic where she is currently the interim medical director. And she is currently participating on a national task force for developing a standard perioperative medicine curriculum for internal medicine residents. She is very involved in the American College of Physicians, both in the Oregon ACP chapter and in the National Council of Early Career Physicians uh, for the ACP. And finally... She is very active on Med Twitter, uh, and you can follow her at A.O. Glasser. That's great. I think we're in the clear. <laughs> is that a reference to clearance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, probably the weakest pun ever. 
Avi, thank you so much for joining us. We've been preparing this one for a long time, and I'm glad that we're finally recording it. And I wanted you to start off by just telling the audience, let's give them a one-liner and tell them something about yourself outside of medicine. Well, I'm really glad to be here. I'm really appreciative for the invitation. Um, to tell you a little bit about myself, I am a 37-year-old loud and proud internist, a Jersey Shore transplant to the Pacific Northwest, uh, who married my college sweetheart, lawyer of a husband, mom to two uh, incredible keep us on our toes little boys. Um, and I enjoy knitting and delving into genealogy research in my spare time. Secretly, I really think I would like knitting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the non-surgeon in me doing something with my hands. Yeah, I, I just I feel like I would be really good at it because it just like the intense focus that it I or or even the. I guess you don't need to focus, but I feel like it would be like coloring or like playing with Legos, just some sort of like... What crochet? You want to do crochet instead? I don't know. Is that this? Isn't that the same? I don't differentiate between knitting and crochet. I feel like it's... This, is I that the it's same different. thing? different. Is it? They're different. Whenever, whenever someone's crochets something for me, it falls apart. That's all I know. <laughs> so one, you wouldn't recommend? One, one crochet hook, two knitting needles is usually the big difference. All right. And genealogy... We we do have a genetic episode coming up, so maybe Ooh. maybe we'll find that interesting. Uh, that'll be in the in the in the new year. Uh, is there any book that you think that uh, every physician should read? So maybe. I actually have two back to back book recommendations, and I had read them back to back this past spring, uh, and they are not immediately medically related, but I, I think they're going to apply to your audience. Um, they're okay. both big light bulb moments for me. I I was sort of having a my own down sort of down moments a couple months ago. The first one is Wild by Cheryl Strayed. Um, and I usually don't like memoirs because I find that they come across really whiny. But this one was so well written in terms of how she processed and really recovered from major life traumas by by tackling the pain head on and really embracing it rather than fighting it. Uh, and the one that right after that was uh, called What Alice Forgot, which is by Lynn, I'm sorry, Leanne Moriarty, who's the author of Big Little Lies. And uh, without spoiling it, it's about a woman who develops pure amnesia and literally loses 10 years of her life and is suddenly herself from a decade ago. And she's looking at her, this new life um, going, how did I get here? Why am I so jaded? Why are these relationships all strained? Why am I taking all this for granted? Um, and at a time when, admittedly, I was burnt out, it was a real op um, eye opener in terms of sort of saying, you know what? It doesn't have to be like this. I don't have to just take this state for granted and how can I get back to that um, sort of fresh and in love and passionate um, about my career and my relationships and just kind of reset so need to read back to back okay uh Stuart did you want to give any book recommendations who me <laughs> book recommendation or a movie recommendation okay I I know you had something for us tonight that's right. I actually have a movie, and this one is actually based off of, a, uh, let's see, a, a few things that I have come across over the past couple of weeks in my job, having to do some pretty stupid things. So my uh, movie recommendation is actually Idiocracy. Uh, it's, yes, it's a wonderful, wonderful dystopian movie that unfortunately I think is maybe slightly prophetic, uh, especially when you watch some of the... Uh, the uh, elections in, I, dare I say it's Brazil that has some of the weirdest, weirdest and wildest elections. And unfortunately, I think some of our elections are going that direction as well. 
But if you've never seen Idiocracy, there are some wonderful quotes about uh, what the uh, physician thinks the diagnosis is. I, I can't really read them on air. Um, needless to say, you should watch it if you have not seen it yet. Yeah. And I think it, Avi, it deals with your interest in genealogy too, right? Like, yes, so like that's a big yeah, part of it. Yeah, spoiling it, it does. My husband and I love that film. There was actually a, an in-depth conversation about it at Thanksgiving this past year. <laughs> Wonderful. It's a small world, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. What goes around comes around. <laughs> that was, uh, Idiocracy was a great follow-up to Av- Avi's very serious <laughs> recommendations and Stuart uh, recommending Idiocracy, uh, Okay, that's a Mike Judge film, I believe. Before we move on to our case, I wanted to ask you, is there any great advice you've got in your career that you wanted to share with uh, with our audience? Sure. Um, I'm going to summarize this and then I'll backtrack a bit to um, learn how to say I don't know. Um, and really, this started for me with uh, my college dorm motto. Uh, back in the day, We uh, the, our house system actually had its own motto and it was uh, Latin deformis sed utilis, which means deformed but useful. And and at the time it had its own quirky pseudo intellectual connotations. Um, uh, There was a thing with armadillos that I won't get into at the moment. Um, But as I progressed through med school, uh, and actually I took the healer's art course as a third year, I really kind of cycled back to this and embraced the deeper meaning of it, um, that we are imperfect but that being able to embrace our own imperfections, both in terms of saying, I don't know, like my knowledge basis is imperfect as a medical student, um, but my own sort of human experience is imperfect. I'm not an automaton, um, but I can learn from it and I can connect with my patients. I can connect with my colleagues through that. Um, so that really kind of became a, a very important focal point that I'm, I'm, I don't know uh, and I can move forward from there. And just feeling comfortable being honest with yourself and others in that regard. I think some of the best leadership advice that I've read about basically said to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. And I think at the core of that is that you don't know everything and it's good to it's it's good to admit that and, and get help when you need it. And and uh, I think in medicine, it's very dangerous when you don't yeah. admit what you don't know. Exactly. Th- those are the those are the people that I worry most about. So great advice. There's been a lot of talk uh, in the medical field about growth mindset. Um, especially I've, I've seen more of that in the last couple of years. My sister is an elementary school teacher who has a background in special education. So I heard about this from her before I heard it in the, the med-, med ed community. And that um, that very forward momentum, there's something called the power of yet. I don't know yet. I can't do this yet. Um, it's really, really healthy attitude. And before we get to the main learning event tonight, we do have a sponsor, and it is the ACP's annual meeting, annual internal medicine meeting 2019, which is taking place in Philadelphia at the beautiful Pennsylvania Convention Center. Paul and Stuart, I believe you guys will be there? Yeah, that's right, Matt. We will certainly be there, and we are super excited to be sponsored by ACP. It's internal medicine meeting 2019. <laughs> <laughs> So, Matt, I know this is an exceptional educational experience that is led by world-class faculty, but I guess I had some specific questions. So what kind of educational activities might be available to me at this internal medicine meeting 2019? 
That's a great question, Paul. You are going to be able to attend over 170 scientific and practice-related sessions, and you will be able to get hands-on learning because there are interactive workshops there. Oh, spectacular. And Stuart, it seems like you're familiar with this event. I'm wondering, are there any social events that perhaps I should be aware of? Yeah, there's going to be a ton of social events, special events, receptions, and networking events. You got to check in when you uh, check in at the the ACP's uh, check-in desk. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Helpful and specific. <laughs> so, Matt, who is this event for specifically? Well, well, Paul, I'm glad you asked. This this event is pretty much for anybody, whether you're a primary care internist, hospitalist, office-based internist, or a subspecialist. You're going to come away with a lot of practical knowledge that you can use. Uh, this is this is stuff from the cutting edge. So you're going to ma- be up to date if you're coming to this meeting. I don't know about you guys, but I really loved it last year, and I hope it's uh, just as good this year. And I'm I'm certain it will be. And as much. As I'm excited to learn, I have to wonder selfishly, Stuart, are there going to be CME credits available for this? Absolutely. There's going to be CME credits available. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So, Paul, Paul, you can join thousands of your colleagues in Philadelphia at the Pennsylvania Convention Center. The main meeting is from April 11th to 13th, 2019, and the pre-course is held from April 9th to 10th, 2019, also at the Pennsylvania Convention Center. And uh, we hope to see you all there. Yeah. Can't wait to see you. And remember, ACP members get the lowest rates before January 31st. Learn what the ACP meeting has in store for you at annualmeeting.acponline.org or just Google ACP Internal Medicine Meeting 2019. Or Bing. Or Bing. (laughs) Or Ask Jeeves or (laughs) all the old favorites. Yeah. Let's go to our let's go to our first case here. We're going to so we're, we'll have a couple cases and we'll we'll get to some of our questions on social media. I might bring them up if they come up naturally as we're going through the cases. Mm-hmm. So this first case is a 60-something lady that, that uh, we were seeing at Cashlack, and she was scheduled for an elective hip replacement. She has COPD, it's, and she has well-controlled but long-standing diabetes. She's still smoking uh, cigarettes. She has peripheral arterial disease with some non-obstructive disease in her legs. And she had an extreme coronary calcifications or extreme coronary calcifications seen on a non-gated chest CT that was done for something else. We're we're assuming probably her primary sent her to get lung cancer screening and they saw this. So she's coming to you for perioperative testing prior to this or perioperative evaluation prior to this elective hip replacement. What are you going to do? You mean clearance, right? You mean clearance, preoperative clearance, right? So let me start with that. So let me tackle clearance at the beginning. Um, Because those of us who really specialize in in perioperative medicine, and and you might hear me go back and forth between peri and pre and post, and people go, what's the difference? I say we put, it's all about your prefixes, your Latin and your Greek. Uh, I put the pre in peri. So pre, intra, post-op. Anyway, those of us who specialize in preoperative medicine really bristle at the term clearance. Um, Somebody I know says clearance is for the lawyers, and I'm married to a lawyer. (laughs) Um, We never erase away risk, but the term clearance sort of feels like you're taking an eraser to a whiteboard, that we have cleared away risk. Uh, Even the healthiest patient going into surgery Maybe, maybe an athlete who has a sports medicine-related injury, the risk of some perioperative complication 
is never zero. It may be 0. 0.0000 something. Um, but when if we can't make the risk zero or provide the false reassurance that the risk is zero, how can we make it as low as possible in an individual patient? So what we're talking about is a patient-centered risk evaluation or risk assessment. Uh, the terms that we like to use, that I use routinely in my practice, is, is this patient stable or optimized? Are they in the best shape for their condition and for the reason they're having surgery? Because that gets into the whole risk-benefit equation. Um, and then even if they're higher risk, they have extensive heart disease or extensive lung disease, are they, again, are they as good as, as, good as they're going to get? To quote another movie title. I'm hearing rule number one, clearance is not a thing. Correct. It shouldn't be a thing. So our goal is to optimize our goal is to optimize this patient and the patient that we gave you has extreme coronary calcification. She has COPD. What what else do we need to know about this patient before we can optimize her risk before this elective hip surgery? Sure. So I'll share my two main mantras. And these are mantras that I use, especially when I'm teaching residents and medical students in the pre-op clinic. And then I'll, I'll apply them to our patient. The first one I say is that our goal in any pre-op assessment is to quantify and qualify the known comorbid conditions and perform a detailed investigation for the as-yet undiagnosed. So just because somebody has coronary artery disease doesn't mean that they're not a good surgical candidate. Uh, I want to know, did you have your STEMI from your single vessel lesion? You got your stent in. You've been on the appropriate course of dual antiplatelet. You're on your statin. You've quit smoking. You've lost weight. You're exercising. You've done all the appropriate lifestyle modifications, and you're exercising daily without symptoms. Or do you have that moderate diffuse disease without targets for revascularization and still smoking and not taking your statin? and with an A1C of eight. So two patients with coronary disease feels like a very different risk profile. Um, and then to investigate for the as yet undiagnosed, it's not just a static boilerplated, oh, let me import your problem list from the electronic health record. I wanna go digging and make sure that we haven't missed anything. Uh, and one of my favorite lines from uh, it was the 2007 American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association guideline, uh, which has since been replaced in 2014, is the preoperative consultation may represent the first careful cardiovascular evaluation for a patient in years or in some instances ever. Yeah, I never really thought of it that way. I, I probably I probably was hoping not to find anything that was going to make the, the evaluation, uh, mostly because I probably was not comfortable like what I was going to do once I found something. So hopefully you'll help us with that tonight. That's that, that's the motivation. And then my other mantra is um, thinking think of the evaluation, think of the assessment as pertaining to this patient for this surgery with this surgeon at this time and maybe even at this venue um, and certainly then for this this surgical indication. So the, the woman that we're seeing at Cashlack together is a middle-aged woman, middle-aged American, uh, so pr presumably has risk factors for coronary disease. And as you've you've shared with us, seems that she really has um, pretty significant risk factors for coronary disease. And even this, you know, what do you make of this coronary calcification on a non-dedicated uh, CAT scan? And and that is certainly 
something that is unclear in the literature and unclear in the guidelines. But putting your good internist thinking cap on, I'm going to ask this woman um, pretty extensively sort of what her baseline health is, what her exercise tolerance is, what um, what cardiopulmonary symptoms she might be experiencing. We've all seen patients like this. She's going to say, well, I, I haven't really been able to do anything for over a year because my hip hurts so bad. So I, I don't really... I don't really exercise much. The most I do is just kind of get around the house, maybe go to the store. And so so kind of Mets Mets are unknown or certainly and and should we be should we be evaluating her Mets in that way? Is that I mean, how do you handle that or what do you ask her? So my general practice is I actually front load my visit with a dis, uh, investigation of functional capacity. So um Mets uh, metabolic equivalence Right here, right now, is one of the the branch points in the ACC AHA, the American uh, Perioperative Guidelines. It's different in the Canadian guidelines, and there was a recently published article looking at METs versus other forms of evaluation. Um, and I, I think that's on our agenda to talk about. But I actually, uh, for my own practice, I really like to start with functional capacity. I say, what do you do for fun? What do you do for life? Uh, necessity, what do you do for exercise? And it's a really great way to actually start my visit with a glorified social history mm. and connect with a patient over just who they are as a person living their life. Uh, I joke that we need to have the Oregon um, METS <laughs> scale. Uh, I hear about hunting and fishing and backpacking and camping. Um, and for a lot of my patients, I actually find out that they're doing at least four METs of activity, which is that branch point in the ACCAHA guideline at the beginning of my visit, uh, and that they're doing this without concerning cardiopulmonary limitations. So we're good. You're done, right? <laughs> well, there's, there's, we cover every organ system when we can. What are you using to, to, to estimate METs? Is there a, a list or a resource that you're using to kind of like look at, you know, when they tell you what activity they're doing where you can estimate? So the standard scale, there's a standard scale, and often people use sort of climb two flights of stairs or carry a, a, a bag of groceries as that formats. There's a wonderful website I like uh, called whyixercise.com that lists things by formal exercise, at-home activities, and sports and leisure, and provides like dozens of examples. Um, heavy household chores, heavy yard work, so like the the patient who lives in the wood and hot chops and hauls firewood can tell you a lot of information. Um, walking on sand uh, is actually more resistance than walking on like a flat, dry surface. So it's really neat to get, get creative and, and learn about people. Hmm. But it sounds like in this woman, um, she's pretty limited. Um, and rather than just stopping there, I would push and probe a bit further and, and explore, well, what happened if you pushed yourself or you, you were running to the bus or... Um, if Cashlack is like any other hospital I've ever worked at, it's a pretty big campus. Yeah. And maybe people really have to hike from the parking lot to get to your office and you sort of gain a data point that way. Yeah. So this woman ended up telling us that she was, when she actually does exert herself, she she actually gets pretty short of breath and uh, she doesn't exert herself much, but when she does, she gets short of breath and sometimes she gets pretty sweaty. Um, not really getting chest pain though. So what do what do we do here? PFTs? Stress testing, what? How would you handle that? Uh, for me, my history, my perioperative history is 
a history of the most major perioperative risk factors. So again, like if you have coronary disease, how is it? If you have COPD, like we know she has, what is her sort of COPD specific history? Does she have PFTs on file? What is her perceived chronic symptom burden? Is it stable? Does she have a cough? Is it productive? Um, does she have any other reason to have known dyspnea? What's her medication package? Um, but it's more than just a static, do you have angina? Uh, and you know, I'm already taking that step back and pausing and saying, well, you know, I really want to make sure that this dyspnea, is it truly her COPD or do I need to look for anginal equivalents and, and maybe prompt um, preoperative uh, stress testing in this woman? Mm-hmm. And then again, you're also going to be uh, using your physical, again, these are core internal medicine or core internist skills, combining your history, combining your physical exam, um, and making and proceeding, pursuing clinical reasoning on behalf of your patient. So the, the thing that kind of confused me when I was reading through, uh, so let's say the, the 2016 in the clinic article, they, they talk about perioperative stress testing and revascularization and it sounds like revascularization doesn't really improve outcomes. And so, so then to me, it's like, well, why, I guess, like, why do you stress test somebody if, if the, way down the line, revascular, revascularization isn't going to make things better? So can you walk us through why, why is it worth stressing somebody and how might that change things? Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges with um, doing a pre-op consult, especially if you're not doing many, or maybe somebody comes to you as their primary care physician and says, I, I need a pre-op, I need, to just, I need you to sign this clearance form for my surgeon. Um, and I think that's the misconception is, oh, I'll stress them, it'll be abnormal, and then they'll get their stent, and their surgical risk will be lower. Well, that really hasn't panned out, and there are probably a lot of reasons for that. Um, And revascularization includes both PCI as well as cabbage, depending on the nature of the disease, depending on the the candidacy of the patient. But it gets us to that step six. If you look at the algorithm, it's step six, and people refer to it as the dreaded step six, and the how will this change management? But I think this also gets to the nuance that it's not just an all or nothing, yes or no, stress test, no stress test, revascularization, no revascularization. There's a lot of intermediate steps between that all or nothing approach. So you may gain information from a stress test. And really, this is applying to asymptomatic patients who are have an elevated risk of complicate, cardiac complications who are not clearly performing more than four meds. This is not the patient who has symptoms that would be prompting testing in and of themselves, even if they weren't having surgery. But the management may be medical optimization. It may be, you know, let's increase the double product control. Let's operate, uh, let's get you on a statin. Let's re- re-engage about tobacco cessation. It may also be more nuanced risk-benefit discussions and it may even, for some patients, be a decision to modify the surgical plan to something less invasive or not involving general anesthesia, like using local or regional with sedation. And it may, in some patients, be a decision to not pursue surgery at all. So there's a lot, there's a lot of ways that, that how would this change management could proceed. Well, let's say that her stress test was positive and she ended up going for catheterization uh-huh. And ends up having uh, severe three vessel disease, which I guess is not surprising because we saw 
severe three-vessel disease on her non-gated chest CT. Mm-hmm. So would this lady end up going for surgery? So everything you've told me about this woman, she is symptomatic and she meets independent guideline criteria for revascularization. So the data is it's uh, revascularization in asymptomatic patients does not necessarily improve outcomes, but she has independent indications. So I would be very nervous about sending this woman for elective uh, orthopedic surgery with symptoms, this risk factor profile, and that that angiogram result. So this case, uh, I guess I guess we're going to have to give this woman bad news that her hip uh, cannot be fixed, at least not before her, her heart is fixed. Mm-hmm. To recap here, the reason that we did a stress test in her, that you wanted to get a stress test, is because she had this symptom that we weren't sure, we didn't know yet if she had coronary artery disease, and she had a symptom that could have been an anginal equivalent. So as a primary care doctor seeing her, you might have done a stress test as a diagnostic measure anyway, just to figure out, does she have coronary artery disease? And the benefit of that is, regardless of whatever happens vascu- with her vasculature, you you can still control her with medications potentially. So it would that you would be using that information um, to so that that could lead to better medical therapy for her, or it could lead to revascularization. And in this case, it ended up leading to revascularization. It did. Yeah. yeah. As far as like consulting cardiology for any of these things, like is there ever times where you're just like, this is too crazy. I'm just going to consult cardiology. Yeah, I feel very comfortable uh, doing initiating a lot of testing myself. Like, if I'm concerned, I can articulate my own concern. You need a stress test. You need an echo. Uh, I have sent to cardiology certainly when testing has been abnormal. Um, I have sent when maybe they have long-standing disease. They're overdue for follow-up. I'm not sure. I, I don't think that testing is going to update it, but I'd like a board-certified cardiology assessment. Uh, I have sometimes sent to cardiology when based on risk factors, like the patient with like severe Parkinson's disease and incredibly labile blood pressure, like autonomic dysfunction. And I'm like, I don't know what the safe stress testing modality is on this patient. Um, Can you please decide for me? Um, Or when I've had abnormal testing and um, I'd really like them to help engage in really nuanced risk discussions. So not their stress was abnormal, can you cath them? But, you know, they're asymptomatic, pulling from maybe like the orbited trial or stuff like that, and the other guidelines that revascularization after an abnormal stress may not be the best thing for a patient, but um, can we medically optimize them? Can we get them established for care because they have an abnormality, they have a low EF, they have wall motion abnormalities, um, can you help me with some of these complex decisions? And I've honestly, I've actually seen less angiograms done probably in the last year or so. Uh, you know, maybe there's an old infarct, you know, depressed EF, old infarct, but no inducible ischemia. Avi, now you might not know this about Stuart, but he's actually part Canadian. Is that right, I Stuart? Am. Boy. <laughs> I think it's I. A? I. No, it's A. 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 <laughs> Where'd I get oi from? <laughs> I don't know. Oi, I think oi ve is Yiddish, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. so for, for Stuart, who's clearly he's not, he's not really Canadian. This is just an awful segue, and I wish Paul Williams was here to to witness that. Hey. 
But Avi, let's say that the same patient, let's let's say that she's not symptomatic, but she she's only doing three Mets. So we don't really know. We don't really know like how how much exertion she can handle. She's got this awful looking non-gated CT with all these calcifications. So what do you think about the Canadian guidelines, which for a patient like this, I think they would recommend a BNP testing, either pro NT pro BNP or BNP. Can you tell us tell us what they would recommend for her? Yeah, this is interesting. So when the Canadian guidelines came out in the last couple of years, it really just looks so different than the ACC AHA guidelines. Uh, both have uh, a risk stratification step using uh, the Canadian guidelines, specifically say the revised cardiac risk index, uh, the ACC AHA guideline at this point says any validated risk calculator. So it could be the RCRI, it could be the MICA, which a lot of people call the GUPTA, but it, it is also referred to as the MICA or the ACS Nesquip calculator. And if we're following the Canadian guidelines, um, if the patient is at least 65 years old, has an RCRI score of at least one, um, or ha- is less than, uh, so 45 to 64 with significant cardiovascular disease, then uh, the step is to order an NT pro BNP or a BNP. And depending on that level, it, it, there's not a step to consider pre-op testing. Um, the next step is level and frequency of post-op monitoring, specifically EKG and troponins. Uh, and actually even also talks about uh, medical co-management or shared care management post-op in the hospital. And the, and really very specifically says in the body of the guidelines um, that they don't feel that uh, stress testing uh, enhances that risk estimisa- um, estimation uh, and even pulls in discussion of cost, potential delays, access to testing, uh, whereas the lab testing could be is lower cost and much more readily available. And they feel uh, perf- just performs better for risk assessment. Yeah, when I was when I was reviewing those for this to prepare for this, I was I was surprised. It it seems it seems like it almost makes it more it makes it more black and white. And they the, they got their cutoff. BNP is ninety two, and NT pro BNP is three hundred. And it's because they're looking at they wanted to they wanted to do this testing for patients who have a risk of at least five, a 30 day risk of at least 5% for mm-hmm. adverse cardiac events. And so if, yeah. the, if they're below those values, then they're considered less than 5% risk and they don't recommend this perioperative troponin testing where they're like every day for 48 to 72 hours, they're testing troponins because they said that, I guess just monitoring clinically, we miss about 50% of post-op MIs. Yeah. And what what I'm still what I'm struggling with about this is I I just feel like post op MI especially the kind you de- detect with troponins like we don't especially if the patient's not symptomatic we don't really know what to do with that right other than just put the person on the medications that they may or may not be on anyway. Yeah, I think there's still a lot of unanswered questions. The managed trial was published in the last six months or so. That's the first randomized control trial to look at some type of post-op therapy for for men, so myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery or an MI, um, and and really should be heralded for being the first RCT to tackle the question. Uh, but I think there's still a lot of unknowns um, and 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 lingering questions about what to do with patients who have these post-op events. As far as you know, from your your 
pre-op or perioperative colleagues in the U.S.? Is, is anybody following the Canadian guidelines? And is that something we should consider doing this BNP testing? Like for, for this patient we gave you, if it's kind of like we don't we can't get a great sense of their functional status, mm-hmm. but we think there's there's risk there. A lot of my colleagues in the U.S. are certainly talking about it. Uh, I don't know of anybody who's following the Canadian guidelines in in the states right now. I'm very curious. I think there's been so much more data on biomarkers. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see what the next iteration of the guidelines is. We went seven years from 07 to 14. I hope we don't have to wait seven years for the next ACCHA guideline. Um, but I think there's other things that have been published, like the the METS trial that may dramatically change how we're assessing patients in the United States. Right. So the METS trial, they looked at, they did a couple different things. They were, they were checking, I believe, BNP, and they were doing mm-hmm. exercise testing, and then they were just doing this sort of the risk estimate of how many METs somebody can do by the physician. And they were kind of comparing them all to with outcomes. And what did that, what did that find? And is that going to change your practice at all, that study? So specifically they were comparing um, subjective. So as I mentioned, I start my visit with uh, engaging the patient in in the glorified social history about how many METs I think they're doing. So that, but that's subjective. That's a patient telling me what they, what they're capable of doing. They use something called the DASI, the Duke Activity Status Index, which is 12 questions um, that feels subjective in a lot of ways, but it's very specific examples. And then points are applied to each one of those 12 activities. Um, and it ranges from exercise to chores. And you get a point, point total. I think the max number of points is like, 58.2. And then then they looked in the study at sort of what is the cutoff or what between the DOSI or cardiopulmonary exercise testing or pro-BNP or the subjective assessment, what correlated best with the ability to predict post-op outcomes. And um, the DOSI, so this objective evaluation actually performed much better. And I've certainly been seeing better. I've seen this on Twitter, which is one of the reasons I'm on Twitter is to engage with a an international periop multidisciplinary uh, co- group of providers, uh, people think that this study really could be a game changer and could really drive the next guideline update. So they'll recommend a DASI instead of, they'll, they'll recommend we, instead of doing our subjective measurement or doing even BNP, we might do the DASI, like just have, maybe have, is it something I wonder if patients can fill it out in the waiting room? Because it sounds like yeah, it's kind I, of going to take your whole visit to fill it out with them. I think that's the the momentum that I'm that I'm feeling. I think there's, uh, the next step is sort of what's the best cutoff. Um, but I think, I, I would say stay tuned. I think there's a lot more to come where this study is, con- is concerned and it'll be exciting to see uh, how it's a game changer. Okay. Maybe we can move on to another case. So this, so this patient, uh, I guess the answer is right now we we would not we would not stick we would not use the BNP we would not you you would not recommend using a BNP I don't want to put words in your mouth but you would not <laughs> recommend using the BNP and following the Canadian guidelines at this time. Yeah. And then troponin testing, same thing. You're not routinely getting it unless the patient's symptomatic. I can't remember the last time I ordered a troponin in in pre-op clinic. Uh, there's a lot of banter about post-op troponins. Oh, yeah, that's what them. I was asking. The post-op, yeah, based- like the Canadian guidelines, like the daily for 48 or 72 hours. But especially as we've moved to these high-sensitivity, next-generation troponin assays, uh, 
there's there's an argument to be made about getting a baseline pre-op troponin so you know if it's an uptrending troponin or this is their baseline. So even somebody oh, who has a chronically elevated mm. troponin, that may truly indicate that they are a higher risk perioperative patient. But then you know if that positive troponin or detectable troponin post-op, is that their stable baseline or is that a new event? Okay, got but it. But I'm, I'm not checking troponins pre-op because I, my group of patients, we don't have a great mechanism for checking troponins on everybody post-op. So not only is Stuart from Canada, but let's say Stuart also, uh, let's, let's, <laughs> let's say, let's say Stuart, uh, he really messed up his knee and he's going to need a knee replacement at the right, ripe old age of, was that a pun? Oh, <laughs> the ripe old age. How old are you Stuart these days? 35, 36? Uh, somewhere between 35 and 75. that's quite the range okay i'm gonna put him at 70 i'm gonna put him at 35 and Stuart, let's just say he really doesn't have much past medical history at all but he's like well you're gonna get a chest x-ray and a urinalysis and cbc cmp that's my uh my surgeon wants everything he wants all the labs his surgeon gave him a form a checklist it says all the all the labs that you Avi, as a good internist, should be ordering. How do you... Please tell me there's no urine pregnancy on there. <laughs> there is this time. Because <laughs> they... I've seen that on a lot of work sets. Because I'm Canadian. Hey! Uh, yeah, okay. We can cycle back to idiocracy now, too. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> And the great the great part of this for the audience is it's it's November as we're recording this, just barely November as we're recording this, and Stuart has a a fantastic mustache still, which hopefully he <laughs> will be shaving very soon. As I have a glass of amaretto in front of me. Oh, is uh, that what you're drinking? <laughs> yes, it is. The amaretto. I think I was asking you, Stuart's surgeon sent him with a nice checklist to tell you exactly what you should order. How do you handle that? How do you handle that communication with the surgeon when they want you to get all this testing that is now really falling out of favor? So rather than jumping to the smoke coming out of my ears, I try to look at this professionally as as a teachable moment. And really with, with anything I'm doing in, in, in pre-op medicine, I want to make sure that those lines of communication are clear and crisp and collegial. And if I'm doing something that seems counter to somebody else's planner recommendation that they understand my rationale behind it. Um, but, but universal periop labs or pre-op labs really is a, a great example of low value care. And that probably in most patients, especially healthy patients, we probably don't need as many labs. Uh, I'm probably spending far too much nationwide annually on, on pre-op labs, especially ones that are not going to inform care are not going to change management and they're not going to lower risk. Do you decide on them based on symptoms, risk factors, or, you know, certain, like if they have CKD, I imagine you're going to check yeah. their uh, a basic metabolic panel prior. In general, how do you decide and what are you commonly ordering on patients? If you could just give like an example. So let's say Stuart has no past medical. So could he go to the OR without any, any blood drawn? Um, and he's having what? Knee replacement? What, do we, knee what replacement surgery do we give yeah. him? He's going to have a knee. He he messed up his knee up there in Canada. Uh, I, Stuart, what were you doing up there? Elk. It had something to do with elk. <laughs> Isn't it moose? <laughs> oh, is that what it is? I don't moose. know. <laughs> You're the worst Canadian, Stuart. You don't know anything about your own country. Well, 
<laughs> I'll start off by saying that if he's hunting hunting some large animal uh, north of the border, I think he's doing more than four Mets, even with his orthopedic complaint. So we'll start there. Okay, that's good. That's good. I, I once read an adage that the best uh, decision maker for who should get what pre-op labs is your pre-op history and physical. Um, and it should be patient-centered and surgery-centered. So a very young, very healthy patient who is having a really minor surgery where the risk of fluid shift is low, the risk of blood loss is low, um, their pretest probability of having underlying lab abnormalities is low, probably should not be getting any labs. Um, personal example, I had really minor sinus surgery almost two years ago, and I was like, don't you dare stick a phlebotomy needle anywhere near me because this is not appropriate. But somebody who's having maybe major orthopedic surgery, you pro I wouldn't fault you for at least getting a basic metabolic. Um, the jump to a complete metabolic or liver function test, that would be much harder to justify. We probably know that most liver function tests uh, or a, a full CMP before surgery is probably low value care. I'll add on the liver function components or the full CMP in somebody with known liver disease, um, either chronic hepatitis or cirrhosis, um, alcohol use disorder or heavy alcohol intake, because I am screening for hepatic dysfunction. Uh, if they're having hepatobiliary surgery, I don't know, um, at, at Cashlack Northwest, uh, we have a renal function panel, which is basically the basic metabolic plus an albumin. And albumin and pre-albumin are actually some of the best validated pre-op labs in terms of predicting post-op complications. So if I want that albumin, I don't need to do a full complete metabolic panel. Um, but I do have a low threshold to go from the basic to the renal function panel, especially in older, frailer patients. Um, CBC, I would say, is reasonable if there's expected blood loss um, or a risk of anemia. Um, and getting back to the, the basic, somebody who is on medications that may affect renal function. So let's say you're taking a lot of NSAIDs. You're not on narcotics before your surgery. Uh, tyla, uh, acetaminophen doesn't really help, but but NSAIDs have proven effective for your chronic pain going into the surgery. I I would probably check a renal function. Um, if somebody's on ACEs or ARBs, I want to know what the electrolytes are. Um, COAGs are one of the lowest value pre-op tests. Um, there really should be almost no reason to do a, an APTT. Uh, I think it, that and INR, except in select patients, have actually, there's studies that they change management like an exceedingly low uh, percentage of the time. Uh, and interestingly, especially if you look at some of the, the more advanced uh, cas uh, clotting cascades, you can have an abnormal PTT, but not be, um, have a bleeding tendency. You could actually be a little prothrombotic, like factor 11 or 12 deficiency. Mm. Um, type and screen is reasonable depending on the uh, estimated EBL, uh, estimated blood loss that a surgeon might share with you. Uh, but again, in a patient-centered manner, if a patient for religious reasons would decline blood products, I'm not going to pay or I'm not going to charge to do a type and screen if they would not receive blood products. Uh, and then there's a, probably a lot of banter about, about urinalysis, um, it's probably, it, there's good data to indicate uh, that it's indicated in certain procedures, especially GU procedures. Um, but 
I would not do a urinalysis in an asymptomatic patient. Again, that gets to your review of systems. Uh, I'm screening for UTIs and URIs and skin soft tissue infections. Um, but, you know, there's so much conundrums with treating asymptomatic bacteria anyway uh, that this is a low-value test. From my reading, chest X-ray, urinalysis, and even stress testing, which we were talking about before, the reason to order those is if you would have ordered them anyway is what Correct. Is what so they're like I've the primary doing. care test. If somebody was in your clinic and they didn't have surgery scheduled, would you still do it? Uh, and chest X-ray uh, has actually been recognized by several of the society, society uh, choosing wisely statements. I think it's um, three total, American College of Radiology, American College of Surgeons, and the American College of Physicians have recommended against uh, standard pre-op chest X-rays. So, so I've, I've run into this where I, I'm seeing a pre-op for someone that's not in my practice, and they, they show up with this checklist, and basically it says, before you can go to surgery, you have to get X, Y, and Z done. And oftentimes, it's just what you just what you just said and i will purposely not order those things and give them a reason why they'll go give that to their physician and the physician the surgeon will say well no we have to get this done and so they will actually send them to the lab by themselves it's it's kind of it's it's <laughs> and just, then they'll call you and ask you yeah, exactly. what to do with the incidental findings that they've discovered yeah yes yeah yeah thank you for diagnosing that fatty liver I think that's the value of also having really good, and, and so if you're maybe in primary care and, and your primary care patient comes to you and from, from any number of surgeons in the community, it's going to be tough to have relationships with everyone. Um, that's, that's why I like that I have a, I'm seeing surgeons that, for patients at my institution and I've been able to develop a lot of relationships over the years. So what you're saying is that I'm, I, I'm kind of stuck. Thanks. <laughs> I'm sad keep up the, the communication. I don't want to say keep fighting the good fight because I don't want to make it sound antagonistic, but continuing continuing to provide that teachable moment that I'm not doing this test because the pretest probability of an abnormality is low and it's, it's not going to inform your perioperative care. Right. I think we should move. I think we should move to a, an, another one of these cases here. And we, I'm realizing we haven't talked about the risk calculators specifically yet. Uh, we kind of did. We talked a little bit. Not a little. Yeah, she yeah. said it doesn't matter. Use anyone. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. Do use that? any of them. Kind of. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I think you're putting words in my mouth. <laughs> Mr. Bean is an 85 year old male with is Mr. He's Mr. Bean's no. He's not 85 yet. He can't be. Mr. Bean hey, is an 85 year old male with his uncle. With severe, yeah, severe cervical stenosis and cervical myelopathy, he's starting to have falls. He's got, uh, you're just worried that this guy's disease is going to be bad and this this needs to be fixed at some point or he mm -hmm. he might actually have breathing problems uh, because yeah. this is the area of the cord where this is involving. He's got moderate COPD. He has CAD. Um, he's, he's actively smoking at this time. He's got cardiomyopathy. He's had MIs, but they've been at least 10 years ago and was not able to have a PCI. His EF is preserved. He's got CKD, uh, three to four is creatinines around 1.8 and he has mild cognitive impairment. So he wants to undergo this cervical procedure of some sort and how are you going to approach this? Maybe if you could comment briefly on like which risk calculator we should yeah. use. So this is this is certainly a, a 
typical patient that I that I might be asked to see someone in, where it's not just one specific comorbid condition uh, and can I clear them uh, or not? This is a guy who sounds pretty medically complex, um, and I would back up and 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 talk to their surgeon and, and try to clarify what the expectations of this surgery are. Why is this patient who, gosh darn it, on paper really sounds pretty complex and pretty high risk? Um, what is that risk-benefit discussion? And then how can I analyze the comorbid conditions and maybe try to lower the risk so that this risk-benefit uh, is as optimized as possible? And this is a patient where I would pull out the longer, more variables to enter ACS, American College of Surgeons, Nesquip calculator. And you can type that in to your search browser or the show notes. And it's, you have 21 questions that you have to answer about a patient. And then rather than a bucket of procedures, so the, the, the MICA has big bucket categories. There's 20 categories of types of surgery to choose from. The ACS Nesquip lets you, lets you actually type in the CPT code. And I like it when I really want to get granular about a specific surgery or a surgeon says, I have two or three options. I don't know what's going to be lowest risk for this patient for the surgical pathology. Uh, can you help me decide what to offer this patient? Um, and then rather than just getting risk of cardiac complications, you get a whole list of possible complications and include serious complications, pneumonia, cardiac surgical site infection, renal failure, death, return to OR. And one of the things that I find really applicable for really medically complex patients, especially geriatric patients, is you get predicted length of stay and chance of discharge to a rehab or nursing facility. So a patient who says, oh, I, I'm going to be fine. They told me I'd be in and out in a day and I'm going to go right home showing them, well, actually this recovery is going to take longer than under ideal circumstances, recovery is going to take longer than you expect. And you're not going to be able to go home. So the patient says, I don't want to go to a nursing facility, come hell or high water. Showing them, them realistically, that's what might your recovery look like under best case scenario um, can be a very patient-centered care. I wanted to point out to the audience, I, I've used this calculator and I think it's actually quite user-friendly. The seat Knowing the CPT code of the surgery, that can be one of the challenging parts, uh, just finding, especially if it's an orthopedic, sometimes there's a million uh -huh. of them. But I, I've been able to use it, and it, you either click through it or it's drop down. It doesn't, you hear 21, and it sounds like it's going to be a, it's going to take you forever, but it really doesn't. And then what I like yeah. about the way that it presents it, it shows, in, it shows this like bar graph that you can, yeah, you could show it to visible. patients or you could copy and put it into the chart so that. It, it, and it shows all these different risks uh, and the, the the length of the bar very clearly marks like here's the average risk and your risk is either above that or below that. So it's it's pretty nice. Yeah, it's very visual. It's also really nice or I like it for patients in the hospital. So when I do inpatient wards, there's a lot of the, the categories or the questions you're answering are going to apply to sick inpatients. So it's on a ventilator, sepsis in the last 48 hours, recent acute kidney injury. So things that are going to be no on somebody that I'm seeing as an outpatient. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of, a lot, most of the time I'm using this or when I'm using this, it's as an inpatient. So a lot of those do come into play, which is another reason that I like it. 
the I, I guess the criticism, and Avi, I'd be interested to hear what you think of this, is that the RCRI has been around for a long time, and it's been externally validated with a lot mm-hmm. of other with a lot of other studies that kind of looked at the RCRI and probably did post-op troponins on people. And I guess that hasn't been done with the NISQIP, even though it was like a bigger initial sample of patients. Do you think that makes it less, uh, like, I don't know, less valid for us to use? I think there's the, the RCRI is still strongly in favor because it's been so widely used and ex- externally validated. Um, I'd say each of the calculators has their own pros and cons. Uh, Steve Cohn and his group actually published an article in the last year or so com- putting the calculators head to head. And it actually looks like the MICA may perform best in identifying high risk patients. Um, you're not, if, if you put the same patient through through the calculators, you will get a different answer for both. I think it's good to have a go-to one that you're very comfortable with, again, knowing the limitations of each one. Um, but again, also sort of knowing what you're going to get out of it. So I may use the ACS Nesquip on a really medically complex patient because I want to see everything else, but I'll look at the the cardiac complications and you know that's coming in at less than 1%, but I simultaneously put them through the RCRI or the Gupta, and they're coming in way more than 1%, I'm, it's going to add to the nuances of my, my decision-making. Mm-hmm. But it also brings up the point that sometimes the everyone's so concerned about the cardiac risk. And, and again, we try not to use, we discourage the use of clearance. Uh, but usually when somebody says, can you clear this patient for surgery? They want to know if the patient can go to surgery without a stress test. But there's so many other things that need to get taken into account and and evaluated and sometimes it's you know the risk of an mi is the least of your concerns right now um and even the the acc aha algorithm which we haven't even had a chance to talk through yet that's just should somebody get through a stress test or not it doesn't talk about echo for heart failure or valvular heart disease uh, it doesn't talk about pulmonary hypertension there's a lot of other driving risk factors there's data that Heart failure-related complications actually drive more cardiac complications, readmissions than coronary disease does. Um, and there's data that pulmonary complications are more common and more costly than cardiac complications. Um, so for all this, please clear my patient. It's like doesn't need a stress test, but let me tell you what else is concerning me about this patient. And this is a this this geriatric patient is a great example of that. He's got heart disease. He's got lung pulmonary disease. He's got a lot of comorbid conditions to to juggle. Right. What when you finally get to the end? So I, I want to jump to the end uh, just to make sure we get this at some point before I forget. When you get to the end of the perioperative evaluation and you're writing your note for the surgeon, what's mm-hmm. an example of what you might write for for Mr. Bean? Other than how you're a huge fan of all his. Movies and everything. <laughs> so, other than saying, um, you know, no further testing necessary, I might say stable optimized, but I might clarify that to uh, they're they're stable. Their comorbid conditions are stable, um, but they are still a higher risk candidate, or they were frail. And and frailty is a hot buzzword in the periop field right now too. Um, they're they're frail, older, high risk candidate. But further testing will not lower that risk. I can't just, you know, adding PFTs, adding a, an ABG, adding an echo will not tell me 
anything I don't already know about this patient. But maybe let's talk about other ways to lower risk or ways to be pre um, re, uh, proactive, sorry, proactive rather than reactive with complications. So you don't have to, one of the, I can't even remember where it was now. One of the articles I was reading was recommending giving patients risks in instead of instead of just saying high risk that you should give them your chances 15 out of 100 that you might have a post op mi or sudden cardiac uh-huh. death I, that seems like no one would go to surgery if you told them that but well i if, if anything you could almost look at this from the other side and say you give somebody a single digit or maybe a low double digit chance and they go, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Uh, and this is actually language that I do use myself with patients. And this is, uh, I think, some of the complexities. Because if you look at the algorithm, the ACC AHA algorithm, the line in the sand is 1% risk of, of MACE, of major adverse cardiac events, which actually seems exceed, uh, like a really low risk. Uh, or we say a high-risk patient has a 5% chance of a post-op cardiac complication. And a patient might say, look at that and go, 5%? That sounds really low. And <laughs> I, how do I explain statistics to a patient? Uh, or a patient might say, well, you know, a 5% MI, that sounds like a really small heart attack. That doesn't sound so bad. But if I had 100 people as, as close to you as possible, five of them or 10 of them might have a heart attack after surgery, or 20 of them might have uh, a really bad pulmonary complication. Uh, And that's at the degree where I really start to worry that we're going to do you more harm than good. And then how can we be as proactive as possible at keeping that risk on the low side? For this gentleman, he, so we don't really have a great sense of his functional status, but he's got like we said, we has, he has moderate COPD. He's still smoking. He's got a cardiomyopathy, but preserved EF and CKD. And uh, he's he's walking with a walker, but not very well. What are we going to do to optimize this guy for surgery? Like, what's give us theoretically? What could we do for him? I say the biggest thing for him is to look at the tobacco use. And also, it sounds like he's a, a fragile geriatric patient. And I would actually look at you know, if there was a, an opportunity for him to get some home assistance. Um, you know, maybe he's living at home. It sounds like he's really impaired by the cervical my- myelopathy. Um, if he's on COPD, I'd, I'd wonder what his, what his hand dexterity is, how well he's utilizing his inhalers, um, you know, how well is he able to perform ADLs and care for his wife. Um, mm. And is this home environment the safest thing for him um, going into surgery in a recovery period? So you mentioned a couple times PFTs, ABG, and you mentioned that pulmonary complications are actually more common. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and how might you use those tests for this guy? Sure. So I think when most people think about pulmonary complications, they jump to COPD and asthma. Uh, and, and I would say that those were the longstanding traditional uh, periop risk factors, um, especially with just the prevalence of COPD in the, the American population. And if you look at some of the original, um, or some of the sort of sentinel studies, um, underlying COPD is a risk factor for a post-op pulmonary complication. Um, there's one study that provided an odds ratio of like 2.36 
for complications with COPD. Asthma, asthma in and of itself, especially if it's well-controlled, is not an independent risk factor. Tobacco use is an independent risk factor for pulmonary complications. Um, but we're really now that we're, we're, we're deeper into the 21st century, the issue is, uh, is sleep apnea and the company mm-hmm. it keeps. It's obesity hypoventilation syndrome and it's, it's pulmonary hypertension, right heart failure. So those are the conditions that get my attention much more than just COPD. And again, it's using the finance, um, the finances, the nuances of your problem statement, your problem list on the patient. Do they have mild COPD or do they have chronic hypercarbic respiratory failure? Uh, do they have chronic hypoxic respiratory failure? Um, do they have severe untreated sleep apnea or do they have uh, excellent CPAP utilization? And I think those, uh, they're appropriately getting a lot much, lot more attention in the perioperative literature these days. I don't think Mr. Bean, he's a, he's a frail older gentleman. He certainly doesn't have obesity hypoventilation syndrome, but he certainly could have pulmonary hypertension. Let's just, let's change it a little bit though and say, yeah. say he is, he is super obese. We think his his like bicarb is like thirty two on his basic Ooh. metabolic panel, and we're thinking this guy has obesity hypoventilation syndrome and OSA comorbid. What what do we need to do for those patients? Because there are, of course, a lot of them out there perioperatively. So I think once you take that step from a, a pretest probability of garden variety sleep apnea to the obesity hypoventilation, that's when the, the bar really gets raised in, in postponing or delaying surgery uh, to get somebody optimized. Um, there's a lot of discussion about uh, should everybody coming in for surgery have uh, go through a stop bang um, screening. We do, uh, I do use that for my patients. Uh, I'd say it's it's rare for me to send somebody for a sleep study just from the systems-based approach. Um, you know, am I really going to postpone, postpone surgery for two or three months to try to get a study that may or may not even be positive or somebody may not even uh, qualify for CPAP? But when I see, uh, you know, they're on their vitals, their oxygen sat is low, or I see an elevated bicarb, um, then that starts... Um, raising the bar for level of concern and, and types of testing that they might need to go through. Do you, do you look at neck circumference specifically? Uh, we do. We actually do. I, I do measure neck circumference on patients. And it's not just for risk of respiratory failure post-op from the unmasked sleep apnea. Uh, and we do know that even patients without sleep apnea, they will have apnea hypopnic events post-op. And somebody mm-hmm. with severe sleep apnea, it'll just get worse. Um, but thinking about uh, potentially difficult airway. Somebody's got a really thick neck. Maybe they have macroglossia. You, their and potty score is four. Uh, predicts more difficult intubation than somebody who's maybe skinny and has a really, um, you know, patent oropharynx. Um, so there's a lot of things that sort of these exam findings uh, get to, rather than just what their stop bang score is. If we're worried that someone has really bad obesity hypoventilation and it's untreated, then that really should be worked up and treated before they go. So we try to get that person yeah. on BiPAP. Mm-hmm. If if they already have it and they or they already have OSA, let's say Mr. Bean already has a, a CPAP machine. Let's take obesity hypoventilation out of it. Let's say he already has a CPAP machine. Uh, he's not really using it 
he doesn't like it that much, but you know, he said he'd be willing to if he thought it was important. Do they, is it as simple as like, do you, do you need to delay things or you just tell them, all right, you're going to have to use it like very religiously before and after the surgery or else you're going to have something bad's going to happen to you from that. How would it change things? I think this is where it gets into the shared decision-making. And I think you'll have to acknowledge that there are generally patients who do not tolerate CPAP or BiPAP. Uh, maybe the, the individual who has severe PTSD or claustrophobia, and they have tried everything in the world to be able to tolerate their CPAP at night. Uh, am I going to demand that they cancel their surgery to try like the 20th intervention to make this tolerable? No, but that's going to get in, included into my risk benefit. Uh, it's going to help me try to empower their surgeon or maybe the patient and their family when they get home to mitigate their risk of complications. So and again, you know, just because somebody has coronary disease uh, or stage three CKD doesn't mean they can't have surgery, but I want to help them have a true sense of their risk. And it's not just stating a static risk, it's stating risk to try to then lower it both pre-op and post-op. So somebody who has sleep apnea and cannot tolerate CPAP, maybe you're talking about, um, again, it's not just, again, cancel surgery or not. Um, where can we do the surgery? What what venue? Maybe somebody should not be having surgery done at a standalone uh, surgery center. Let's move them to the in-hospital setting. And let's maybe make this a 23-hour OBS rather than a discharge home the same day, or maybe make this an inpatient surgery rather than a 23-hour ops or a day surgery. Um, that uh, a lot of patients uh, who are having like upper extremity surgery might have a home pump, so they'll have a block. Um, there's a small risk of maybe phrenic nerve paralysis. So rather than sending that patient home, let's keep you in a monitored setting. Uh, this brings up the question of um, post-op opioid counseling and prescribing. Um, most patients, like our standard instructions are, you, you cannot be alone the first night after your surgery. You have to have a family member or a responsible adult stay with you. Um, so counseling and anticipatory guidance to the, the patient's own care team. Um, even things like sleeping upright in a recliner uh, to minimize the risk of, of airway collapse, because it's not just the underlying sleep apnea or suspected sleep apnea. There's neuromuscular blockade on board. Uh, there may be some sedation, lingering. Um, you might be taking narcotics. So I'll tell patients, you know, if when you go home, you know, really try to minimize your dose of, of um, a narcotic before bed. Uh, maybe sleep in the recliner rather than flat on your back in bed. Even these little mitigation strategies. I like it. Practical tips. That's uh, we're all about that. So, Avi, I know that we're I know we're winding winding down here, but the, I'm realizing how this can be like a full a full day course uh, or yeah. or multiple days to go through perioperative <laughs> medicine. But I do I do want to get through as much as we can. And uh, a lot of people are interested about pain management and opioids because they're all, the opioid epidemic, everyone's worried about creating mm -hmm. new people that have opioid use disorder. Is there, Do you have any words of wisdom for us there? And I know, we know we're going to do another show on perioperative medication management, but maybe we can yeah. at least comment a little bit now. Yeah. I think Paul wants to do perioperative marijuana usage too. <laughs> hey, Paul loves Paul loves talking about marijuana. 
I, I've gathered that from listening to this show. <laughs> we, we, we don't know why, and frankly, I don't think even he knows why. So perioperative opioid use in, in a nutshell. Uh, I really actually want to commend my my the royal we of uh, royal them of, of my surgical colleagues, uh, because I think that the surgical literature has really stepped up to the plate in the last couple of years, um, exploring and acknowledging the role of post-op acute pain related prescribing and the overall opioid, opioid epidemic. Um, sort of, I think the general sense is that any acute reason for for pain control can be the, t- the beginning of that slippery slope that leads to chronic dependence um, or even addiction. Um, there's data that new persistent opioid use is very common after surgery, um, five, 6.5%, depending on the study. Um, there's an interesting article out in um, JGIM just recently on who is prescribing opioids at six to nine to 12 months. Uh, is it surgeons? Is it chronic pain or chronic chronic prescribing that moves into the PCP realm. A lot of um, surgical specialties that are performing minor procedures where the pain control really is expected to be minimal and the volume of opioids that they're dispensing, including dental procedures, dermatologic procedures, other low-risk procedures, um, and not just quantifying how, like, how many morphine equivalents they're prescribing, uh, looking at unused pills, unused, um, what patients really need, and then launching into educational endeavors to look at how do we lower the volume of narcotics prescribed. Um, and uh, just from, from individuals that I have the privilege of knowing, there was an article published in JAMA Otolaryngology just recently looking at um, post-op opioid prescribing after parathyroid and thyroid surgery, and really took that upstream approach saying, let's look at counseling, let's look at expectations, let's inform patients what to expect in terms of pain needs or what what post-op pain would be better targeted by non-narcotic analgesia, even as something as simple as a throat lozenge. So I think there's more to come with this. I think people have really recognized that this is one of the puzzle pieces of the opioid epidemic. And they've really accepted responsibility for looking into this. Yeah, what I've seen, what I've seen at Cashlack is people put like they they have very specific like pre preoperatively they have a pain plan and they're using a lot of adjuvant medications for pain and trying to trying to spare opioids. And then uh, my colleagues and I are just writing prescriptions. If we are writing prescriptions, it's for just. Uh, a very short duration, small number of pills, mm-hmm. and really trying to trying not to write any if we don't have to. But you know, some I mean, to some extent, like these medications, like w- are necessary for some of these painful procedures. Um, so I, I think we can't just like not prescribe them at all. I think I think that it is its own slippery slope. That if you're not prescribing at all, um, people might risk pursuing from other means. Yeah. Um, I think setting reasonable expectations, providing anticipatory guidance for what type of pain to expect. Uh, and also, uh, you know, we know depression, anxiety can, can magnify pain scores. If you're nervous, is, is this pain is I'm pain I'm supposed to be having. 
And if you feel reassured that this is healthy healing, it, it may actually help the whole recovery process. I think we should move on just to make sure that we can get in a couple of these last points here. Okay. And maybe, maybe we go back to uh, Stuart's case. Stuart, are you here? Yes, I am. Let's say, let's say that when Avi is doing your perioperative exam, you're, for whatever reason, you're in the U S I guess she's up, (laughs) she's up near the border. So you're, you're, you're visiting, you're visiting Cashlack Northwest and she hears a murmur. It's never been worked up before. Uh Oh, Uh, Avi, how do you decide if you if Stuart needs an echo and in general, like which patients are going to get a, an echo? Is it, is it something that has been shown to change management or be a high value test? Uh, so this is actually one of my favorite areas to discuss. Um, again, I think there's so much focus on, can you clear my patient for surgery? I, does my patient need a stress test that we kind of overlook the rest of the ACC AHA guidelines? Interestingly, between 2007 and 2014, the indications to pursue echo, I think, actually expanded. It used to be concern for severe stenotic disease, severe aortic stenosis, severe mitral stenosis, which is pretty rare in this country um, in in the 21st century. Um, Now, based on data for associated risk and knowing that our exam for severe valve disease is not good as much as we'd like to pride ourselves as internists, uh, that if there's clinical suspicion for moderate or severe stenotic or regurgitant valve disease to pursue an echo if it's been at least a year. Um, and then uh, there's, there's guidelines for which patients with um, dyspnea of unknown etiology. Uh, so the patient who's dyspneic and maybe does not have a prolonged expiratory phase. And so you're starting to think about heart failure. Um, There's guidelines uh, for who would benefit, uh, for who an echo might change management. And I actually find myself probably ordering more 2D echoes than I do stress echoes, looking for either the undiagnosed heart failure, the undiagnosed valvular disease, or someone who has known valve disease, known heart failure, and is overdue for follow-up. You know, we talked about sort of the concept of how will change management. I don't think they need an echo before surgery. I'll just watch them afterwards. You know, I'll, I'll do a daily JVP assessment. I'll watch their eyes and nose like a hawk. An echo is not going to change my management. But again, you're a member of the perioperative team. There are a lot of people caring for this patient. And it may not be so much your post-op management, but it might be the intraoperative management. And knowing the specifics of the types of heart failure, especially now that right heart failure, pulmonary hypertension have emerged as a major perioperous factor, uh, that right heart failure is going to be managed very differently intra-op than diastolic heart failure or LV systolic failure. Or aortic stenosis, somebody's got a systolic murmur, but they're not dyspneic, uh, they don't look volume overloaded. But management of an aortic stenotic aortic murmur is going to be different than uh, like a mitral regurgitation murmur. So someone else may really benefit from information to empower their care of the patient, especially in the operating room. The last thing that I wanted to get into with you is when when we we talked about some testing, we've, we've talked about this whole episode has really been about talking about risk, identifying it, optimizing it, and how to communicate with the the surgeons. 
how are you going to tell a patient when you find stuff that just makes it that the risk is not acceptable and you're going to have to t- recommend that the surgeon doesn't perform the surgery? How do you handle that situation? Yeah, and that's a tough one. And that's certainly a situation where I try to come to it and, and show a patient that I'm coming to it from a place of caring and concern. Uh, a lot goes into scheduling a surgery. There's a lot of mixed emotions. Someone can be both excited to get that long-awaited hernia repair, uh, knee replacement, hip replacement, back surgery done. Uh, they might be very nervous about it to begin with. Um, they may have something malignancy-related or not elective, so life or limb-threatening. And all of a sudden, I'm coming at them saying, you know, we got, I don't know if you're having surgery next week. Um, I like to see people a week or two weeks before surgery. The, the federal regulatory rules uh, say you need an H&P within 30 days of surgery. Um, seeing somebody before surgery or two days before surgery can make it very difficult to pursue additional testing. Uh-huh. Um, but that one to two week spot, I can get a lot done. Then I also have to make sure that my language is sharing my concern with them. And then all of a sudden I've raised their blood pressure. Oh, we got to talk about a stress test or we got to talk about an echo. So now in addition to being worried about surgery, they're worried about something else. Um, and everything that comes with surgical planning, maybe they have family that's coming in from out of town to care for them. Their, their adult child has already filled out the FMLA paperwork to take three weeks off. And now I'm saying that calendar, that checkbox on the calendar you've had for three months, uh, forget about it. Um, And I try to make this as compassionate um, and sympathetic as possible. And I say, I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried that we don't, that you're, when you're not in the best shape possible for surgery, or I'm worried you have a murmur, you're telling me that you're having chest pain. And I want to make sure that we look into this so that you come through this surgery with far more good than any potential harm, that you get that new knee and you can use it rather than laying in bed recovering from a heart attack. Or you have this murmur, you know, I don't think it's severe, but I want to empower your anesthesiologist. I want to empower your surgeon to take the best care of you possible. I think we need more information. And if I have a week or two weeks to get the testing done, I try to offer that reassurance is we'll know, we'll know in the next couple of days and hopefully that surgery date will stay your surgery date. Um, but if it's a short-term cancellation, um, you know, I say like, I'm sorry, but I really don't think proceeding with surgery tomorrow or in two days is the safest thing for you. I think we've all had that where you get the patient that comes to you and they're, they're like having surgery tomorrow and there's a lot of unanswered questions and they're asking you to do their perioperative risk evaluation or their clearance. They're definitely asking yeah. you for clearance. The patients mm-hmm. use that terminology too. So it is a tough conversation. We need to we need to ask you for some take-home points so that we can let you go before your kids break into the room and <laughs> you know. So how about some how about a couple favorite take-home points that you wanted to leave the audience with? Sure. I'm going to share that perioperative medicine, as uh, nail-biting and nerve-wracking as it can seem, um, can be a very rewarding and fulfilling challenge um, as an internist, be it primary care, hospitalist, or even a medicine subspecialist. Um, And then even if you don't focus on it or don't see a lot of patients for pre-op evaluations, um, there are some very essential tenets to be aware of or know what guidelines 
to go to. Um, it's For me, it's a fantastic way to practice patient-centered care grounded at the bedside uh, that may involve complex goals of care discussions and that uh, it's really been a wonderful way to have a robust multidisciplinary practice with uh, lots of relationships with surgeons, anesthesiologists, and, and an internal medicine community. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Mmm, yummy. <laughs> get, sh- get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our show notes in your inbox. That's right. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please, subscribe, rate, review the show on iTunes, or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks goes to everyone that helped us on this specific episode, but specifically to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I'm Stuart Kent Brigham. I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I would like to especially thank Dr. Avital Oglasser for uh, putting so much hard work into, into this episode. Moment of silence for Paul. Okay, that's good enough. And good night.